Ephesians chapter 3. Open your Bibles to the third chapter of Ephesians. We're going to make a little traction today, Lord willing. And that is, lest any of you judge me, I'm going to get through seven verses today. And uh, don't stop. Stop judging me. At least I did first hour. Uh, so grateful to the Lord for this book. I, um, I'm having uh, just the time of my exegetical life each week studying these these incredible, incredible truths, and falling in love with Ephesians in fresh and new ways, and already am sad that we're going to have to finish it. I, I'm, I'm anticipating getting to chapter 6 at the end and saying, let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, but we won't probably do that. Just so dense and so, so rich. We're going to pick it up at the end of verse 6 and go down, down through verse 17 and notice the title for today is The Caretaking of God's Good News. You, you can also say the stewardship of God's good news. The caretaking of the gospel. The caretaking of God's good news. He talks about the gospel in the last word of verse 6. and He references the gospel, verse 7, of which I, Paul, was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold, multifaceted, wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. One of the most remarkable attributes of the Bible, of Scripture, is its dual authorship. First, the Bible is written by men, real living men. But second, the Bible was written literally breathed out, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, by God, the Holy Spirit. So as we study any given passage in the Bible, it's important to keep both authors, these two authors, these two perspectives in mind. They are always in concert with one another. At every juncture, we must remember that the words that we're reading are divine from the very lips and heart of God. But it's also important to remember that these words come from a human author's mind. And as much as possible when you're studying a book, to get to, get to know that human author is helpful to understand and interpret that text of Scripture. Sometimes we know who the author is, like the passage before us. We find out that Paul wrote it from chapter 1 and also from chapter 3, verse, verse 1. But for some books, we don't know the author. There are certain histories in the Old Testament. We don't know who wrote those for sure. There, the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote that. 
So where the Lord has allowed us to know the author, that's a, a great advantage. And when he has chosen not to, he has chosen that that's not important for us to know. Well, we know that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. And it's especially true that if you understand Paul better, you will understand his writings better. It's far, far too easy to make Paul a super saint, a Christian superhero. You wonder if people are going to make little figurines with the Apostle Paul someday as a superhero for kids. But I think if, if Paul were here and we had a discussion with him, you could take him to lunch perhaps, I'm convinced he would have resisted any notion at all of being a super saint. Instead, he would have put the accent of his life on the fact that he was a sinner, a bad one, saved by God's amazing grace. Not only that, he would be equally surprised that he, more surprised that he was in the ministry than he was even that he was converted. His faith was the same as ours. Now, Paul, like elders and, and leaders in the church today, pastors and elders and leaders, do not, did not have a higher standard. And I know some people say, well, elders have a, a higher standard or, or apostles had a higher standard. He didn't and, and elders and leaders don't. There is no higher standard. There's only one standard, but there is a higher accountability for those who are in leadership. And Paul understood that accountability and he wielded it with great care and reflection. Paul was no super saint. However, he did ask his readers to do something that's remarkable. Who says this? Let me read you a few passages from Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me. Imitate me. Now that shouldn't stand alone, and it doesn't. Because he follows that up with saying, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Philippians 3.17, brethren, join all together in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us, me and the apostles. Philippians 4.9, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Who says that? Who can say that? Well, a man who's very in touch with his sinfulness and his salvation and the gift of God's grace that's in his life. And that was our friend, the Apostle Paul. In the text before us here, we hear of Paul's example of faithful, humble, reflective ministry. And we would do well to do some imitating. It's easy to read these verses that I read a moment ago, verses 7 through 13, and just say, well, that was Paul, and that was then, and I am me, and this is now, and what's the point? I think that there's a lot to learn here if we would take Paul's admonition to imitate his example, especially his understanding of caretaking the good news, caretaking grace, caretaking of the gospel. Paul's in the middle of a discussion in chapter 3 of what it meant for him to be a steward of the gospel. He calls this a stewardship of God's grace in verse 2. 
you know of the stewardship, the caretaking, the, the ministry that was given to me to be a caretaker of God's gracious expression in the gospel. And now in verses 7 to 13, the apostle opens a window into his own heart about this stewardship, his experience with it, and we can clearly see what it means to be a faithful steward, a faithful caretaker of the gospel ourselves. Yes, this is Paul's testimony, but we would do well to imitate the principles of his caretaking, his stewardship of the gospel. So we're going to break this down. This is a more extensive outline because it's a lot of verses and it can seem complicated, but hopefully this outline will help us navigate a little bit as we, we flow through and, and observe together four features of faithful gospel stewardship. That's a lot of Fs, four features of faithful gospel stewardship. I'm typically not very alliterated, but that one came out without any effort. Four features, attributes of faithful gospel caretaking stewardship. Let's look in verses 7 and 8 and notice first the personalness of gospel stewardship. That's an important word, personalness. This was personal to Paul at the deepest level. The personalness of gospel stewardship. We'll break that down into two subpoints. First of all, it involves awareness of God's grace. This is no shock. It seems like every other sermon and every other passage, Paul is going back and accenting and reflecting on God's unmerited favor that he received called grace. Verse 7, the gospel of which I was made, a passive verb, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of of his dunamis, of his power, sorry. We'll come back to dunamis in a minute. As Paul comments on his call to be a minister and his call into the ministry, it causes him to be reflective. He's, he's wistful. He reflects on related dimensions of his stewardship. First of all, his unworthiness and God's power. Those come together in this passage. God's enabling power, his inept unworthiness. He's going to develop his appointment into the gospel ministry here all the way through verse 13. But for now, notice the details of verse 7. He says, the gospel of which I was made a minister. It's a reference to a passive thing that happened to him. I was made a minister. Now, the question you have to ask is, by whom? And we find out from chapter 1, it's from God. God made him this way. I was made. Acts chapter 9 chronicles this call to the ministry. He meets Jesus, resurrected from the dead, alive and in the flesh, on the road to Damascus as he was going up on a trip to arrest Christians and see them face possible death for their faith. He was a Christian terrorist, a terrorist against Christians. That was his target to go and arrest them and to bring them back, to extradite them back to Jerusalem so that they could be held in religious contempt of God and jailed or executed. Paul says, I, I was made, I was made something by God. I was made a minister. Look at the next phrase, according to the gift of God's grace which was given me. Paul's, as we've been seeing week after week, Paul's passion and enthusiasm was driven by his possession 
of the gift of God's grace. Let's say it this way. Truly faithful believers, genuine maturing believers, are always those who have a deep sense about and love for God's grace in our lives. Then he says, according to the working, the outworking, the exercise of his power. Paul was very aware that possessing God's grace came hand in glove with God's dunamis. That's the Greek word for power. We get the word dynamite for it, but don't be tricked by that. We think of dynamite as this explosive thing, and there are some accounts of the word being used that way in classical Greek. More often than not, though, it's not this massive outwork of power. It's simple enablement. It's giving the power to do what's called and what's expected. So power is a good word, but it's power because it's enabling us to do what God has asked us to do that would have been impossible without his empowering grace. God's supernatural enablement for Paul was to be faithful in the most threatening of circumstances. Just read the book of Acts from Acts chapter 9 on. It is, I mean, it, it, it can make you anxious looking at the passage after passage. What's coming next? What's going to happen to Paul next? Especially when the Holy Spirit says, Paul, God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. Everywhere you go, you're going to be persecuted, beaten up, cast out of the synagogue, suffer, put in prison, and die for the ministry. How's that for God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? And yet he also gave his working, the working of his power according to grace, which teaches us that God never calls his people. God never calls you. God never expects you or me. He never asks us or commands us to do anything for which he does not also provide the enablement, the power to be faithful, the power to obey. There is power and enablement to evangelize. No matter how afraid we, we might be, there is power and enablement to suffer, no matter how bad it gets. There is power to experience persecution. There is power to obey. There is power to be holy. There is power to be faithful in ministry. I know sometimes we can say, this is too much for me, and we would be right. But it's only too much for us when we realize that God will enable us to do what he's called us to do by his grace, by his giving. God has given us every enablement to be faithful and to be holy. Peter talks about this in 2 excuse me, in 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing, knowing that His divine power, there's the dunamis again, His divine power, same idea that Paul gives us, has given, has granted to us, comprehensive, everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. There's a lot there. He's saying the knowledge of God, the knowledge of grace, the knowledge of the gospel, our understanding of God's nature and God's works and God's acts and God's history, what we have in the scripture, that knowledge enables us 
to have power to do what God expects. Also, he says, everything pertaining to life and godliness. I think that's the living of life from the mundane to the profound and godliness. That's holiness and faithfulness. Comprehensive. We have everything that we need. So it involves awareness of God's grace. Let me encourage you to talk about God's grace. I pray that our church adopts and learns the vocabulary of biblical grace. That we see what some people call the evidences of grace, the demonstrations of God's grace, and that we recognize those and we can talk about those and, and share those with each other as frequently and as deeply as we do our troubles and our ailments. Second sub-point is it involves awareness of personal unworthiness. Personalness of gospel stewardship involves awareness of personal unworthiness. And this is rich to me, Paul says. So biographical. The very least of all the saints, this grace that he just referenced was given. Such an important insight into our teacher, the Apostle Paul. What's behind this statement? Well, simply, Paul never lost the amazement of being saved and called into gospel ministry. He was amazed every day. He didn't see himself as a celebrity. He saw himself as the end of the handout line, and he was surprised he got grace handed out to him. Why? Because he understood himself as being undeserving of the privilege of receiving grace as a Christian and of dispensing grace as a minister. He didn't believe he deserved it. He outright says that and tells us that, that he feels that way. I mean, look at what he, how he calls himself, the very least of all the saints. Would anyone look at church history and say there's a list of faithful uh, men and women and the bottom, the last person in line would be the Apostle Paul? We wouldn't say that. He thought of himself like that. You say, who did he compare himself to? He stood by in Acts chapter 7 and watched a man be stoned to death for his faithfulness while he was an accomplice. And Stephen died. You have to remember. You have to believe. You have to Surmise, he never forgot that example. How does Paul understand himself? I broke it down into three kind of understandings. First, he understood he was unworthy because of personal sin. He says so in 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Is this the Christmas story? To save sinners. Then he says this, among whom I, am the foremost. Second, he understood himself as a blasphemer who persecuted and disrespected Christ personally and the church by extension. In fact, Jesus said that persecuting him and persecuting the church were the same thing. In 1 Timothy 3, excuse me, 1 13, he says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, I was shown mercy because I acted in unbelief and ignorance 
Acts chapter 9, his conversion story, verse 5. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And remember, he was persecuting the church. Jesus said to persecute the church is to persecute me. He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It was personal. Acts chapter 26, reflecting on his conversion. And I punished them often all in the synagogues, talking about his chasing Christians. I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them. I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And that's where he was going in Damascus up in Syria to try to capture and extradite Christians back to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 26, reflecting on his testimony again. When we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Again, I said, the Lord said, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Also, thirdly, he had tried to destroy believers in the church. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. He's not just the least of the sinners and the least of the saints. He's the least of the apostles, he said. Not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Philippians 3.6, I was a persecutor of the church, righteous in my own estimation. Paul was a Jewish terrorist against Christians. And yet, and yet this man received grace. I don't know where your heart is this morning, but I've spoken to enough believers, I've spoken to enough people who sometimes come to the, the unfortunate conclusion that they have found themselves through self-assessment in their own estimation to be beyond God's grace. Can you, can you see Paul's example and realize your resume doesn't look like his. Chaser of Christians that tried to destroy the church, a blasphemer of God, persecutor of Jesus. And even if you've come close to that, we learn from Paul, there's grace for such. You can not out God's infinite grace. I love Jerry Bridges' words. These have been, you know, we talk about this from time to time, that books don't change your life. Sentences do, and you've you got to read the whole book to find the sentence. It's not the same sentence for everybody, or people who write sentences and not books. This was one of those sentences for me in his book on transforming grace. He says this, Our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Let that sink in. Our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Oh, I pray that we never weary of understanding our personal unworthiness like Paul did and that God's grace extended to unworthy 
sinners like you and like me. And equally hold in your mind the joy of being happy to be a recipient. This is not a macabre estimation of just, I'm awful. This is, I'm awful and God saved me anyway. What a God. And it brought him joy. So the first feature of faithful gospel stewardship is the personalness of God's stewardship. He took it personally and so should we. Second is the plan for gospel stewardship. The plan. Paul now divulges what God planned to disclose through his apostolic ministry. And this is broken down into two subpoints as well. First of all, the plan for God's stewardship involved preaching the riches of Christ. Preaching the riches, the wealth of Christ. He says in the middle of verse 8, he received this grace, he was called into ministry to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. We've talked about this for a few weeks. He was called to the Gentiles. He wanted to go to the Jews, and he did, not very successfully, but he was compelled to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He returns here to the aim of his ministry. And by the way, if you want to see his call to the Gentiles, that's in Acts 9, 15, Acts 22, 21, Romans eleven thirteen. Galatians 2, 8 and 9, 1 Timothy 2, 7, over and over and over, he says, I was an ardent Jew, but called to give the gospel to non-Jews, to Gentiles. Now, I think that's significant when you know who Paul was. He gives us his resume in Philippians chapter 3. I alluded to it a few minutes ago. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, he talks about himself. He says, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. And by that, he means his accomplishments, his resume. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in their flesh, I far more. And then he gives it to us. Circumcised the eighth day, which is interesting to me. He didn't have anything to do with that. That was his parents. But he says, from the very beginning, I was a Jew of Jews. Of the nation of Israel, Jewish. Of the tribe of Benjamin, special tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, I was a conservative, not a Sadducee, a liberal. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And then he says this, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Now, I think Paul really believed that. He just says, you give me the laws, I'll check them off. I was a legalist. But... Whatever things were gained to me, he's talking, not talking about cars and houses. He's talking about his resume he just listed. Those things I considered as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count everything, all things, to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Remember that phrase, Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let that have a bookmark in your mind whom I have suffered the loss of all things, count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He didn't lose everything. He still had a cloak. He still had things to write with and people to travel with. When he says all things, he says, I lost all my Jewish resume when I received grace. God changed his course of life to be an evangelist, a shepherd of Gentiles. Look at the next phrase. It's a beautiful shorthand description of the gospel. What was his message? To preach the unfathomable riches, really it's a singular wealth, richness of 
Christ. We've already seen this noun for wealth back in chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 7. We did a deeper dive back then. It means abundance, riches, wealth. But the adjective is interesting here. I'm going to try this. This is one of my, my favorite words, Greek words to say. Listen to this word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. Onex esneostas. And it means unmeasurable. They tried to create or unfathomable. Now, what that's from is a seafaring term where you would take a long rope with different soundings, different rocks, and you would drop it down to touch the bottom, and then you could know how deep it was. Well, when you drop the rope down and it didn't touch the bottom, that was unfathomable. That was unmeasurable. So I looked this up in my, my Greek dictionary, and it was interesting. This, was, these were, this is what it said in the lexicon. Not to be traced out, indetectable, uninvestigatable, unsearchable, inscrutable, unmeasurable, incomprehensible, and fathomless. Get the point? He uses it only one other time. Listen to where he uses it. Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable, different but a cousin word, how unsearchable are his judgments. And here it is, unfathomable, unmeasurable, inscrutable, unsearchable are his ways. Paul uses this word to say, God is amazing. And I can't stop being amazed. The more I learn, the more I want to learn. The more I see, the more I see. I can never find the edges of his ways. I can never find the depth of his character. But he kept looking. That's worship. What is this wealth, this unmeasurable wealth of Christ? Well, verse 3 tells us. It was the revelation that God gave because Christ came and in the New Testament. It's the mystery. Even though Paul knew his unworthiness, he still carried the responsibility and honor of preaching to the Gentiles the worth and wealth of Christ. Do you hear the tension? I am so unworthy. But you know what I have to say? Someone is worthy and gives you wealth beyond description. What's the wealth? It's grace. God gives what you do not and cannot earn or deserve. We'll see later in chapter 4 and 5 that those who have been given grace love to give it. Secondly, unveiling the mystery of Christ as a part of the plan. We've looked at this in some detail for several weeks now. Unveiling the mystery of Christ and to bring to light. In other words, to turn the light switch on from darkness to light. What is the administration or the dispensation of the ministry which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things? He returns to his theme of mystery. The whole chapter has, has been accenting. Remember, the concept of mystery is not a, a riddle to be solved. It's, it's not a, a novel to be figured out. You, you, you don't have all the clues, and if you put them together, you'll know what he's talking about. 
This is something previously hidden to Old Testament saints, but now freshly, newly given in new revelation because of the coming of Christ and the canon of the New Testament, New Testament revelation. Again, that's back in verse 3. By revelation was made known to me the mystery. This is an, he calls it an administration. We looked at this word back in chapter 1, or a, a dispensation. Don't get too eschatological about that. He just means a rule, a, a season, an administration or a dispensation that had been hidden but is now known through the gospel. What he's saying is God is not working through Judaism to create proselyted Jews. He's now working through the gospel to take Jews and Gentiles and to make them believers and Christians. That's the new dispensation. Again, this points to the importance of the power of New Testament revelation. So much was hidden from Old Testament saints. You and I should be so, so grateful, so privileged that we hold the entire canon of the New Testament and Old Testament bound together. I just keep thinking of, I don't want to be silly, but what it would be like to own all of the scriptures as an Old Testament saint. You would have to use both arms to hold 66 scrolls and walk around with it. No one had that concept. And listen, This is an indescribable privilege that you have to be alive when you can hold the whole of God's truth and turn it on on your phone. Incredible. He says it was brought to light. It means it was in the darkness. The gospel The giving of grace has brought to light, the revelation of God has brought to light this new administration, this new season of God's working in the church. And the context here is the new humanity comprised of Jewish and Gentile believers who've come together. And that's rooted in that last phrase. This is incredible. In God the Creator. In God the Creator. Why would he say that? God who creates all things, who created all things, this is not to be underestimated. His speaking of God's creation and God's creative nature of pulling the world into existence, what he's saying is the existence of a unified church is a creation of God on the same miraculous level as Genesis 1 and 2. It's a miracle. It's divine supernatural, and to be appreciated. That's what Paul had as a stewardship, unveiling the mystery. And you and I would do well to imitate his understanding that he has the mystery and that he can give the mystery. Which brings us to a third feature of faithful gospel stewardship, the purpose of God's stewardship. The purpose. Now, I want to confess to you, this is, this is a little bit shocking when you get into the details of it. This also is broken down into two subpoints. First, the revealing of God's wisdom to the angelic realm. I just almost want to laugh saying it. This is, this is incredible. So that, purpose clause, so that. The manifold, the multifaceted, the indescribable, the, the multitudinal wisdom of God, follow his logic here, might now... 
New Testament era, be made known, that's preaching, through the church, that's his preachers, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies or the heavenly places. I have often participated in discussions about the purpose of the church. I love those discussions with other pastors. I love them with our elders. I love them with with other believers. I love talking about God's richness and his purpose in the church. I don't remember ever hearing the first answer to the question, what's God's purpose to the church being this? To inform angels and demons and Satan. But that's what Paul says the purpose of the church is here. That's his point. Verse 10 tells us that God's wisdom in his infinite, manifold, multi-sided, intricate wisdom, that just means his, his wisdom is way bitter, bigger and better than ours. He chose to use the church, Mission Road Bible Church, to inform angels, demons, and Satan himself to teach them. Our friend Dr. Horner remarks this way. He says, it's remarkable that God purposed to make known his manifold wisdom, the mystery, to heavenly rulers, those are those heavenly rulers and authorities, through the church rather than telling them directly. You ever thought about that? That's a good thought. I mean, couldn't he have just called a conference with the angels and demons and Satan and said, I got something to tell you all. I'm going to tell you about the manifold grace, my wisdom, saving sinners by, by my kindness, by grace, by mercy. I want you to know that he did not do that. He kept it hidden from them until this. By the way, it's important to remember that angels and demons and Satan himself are not omniscient. Sometimes we think, well, God is the good God and Satan is the bad God and they both have equal powers. Satan is just an angel. He's just a created being. He's limited. In chapter one, Paul has much to say about the angelic realm and he begins that in chapter one. He's gonna come back to that in chapter six. In fact, the most extended treatment of demons in the whole New Testament is in Ephesians chapter six. And we'll take some time to do a deep dive on that when we get there. We'll save that deep dive for then, but for now we learn that God's design was to use salvation and the church to speak to these created beings. Peter let us know a little bit about this in the angelic realm, what they understand about salvation and consequently the church. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it was revealed to them, this is uh, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which we now have which now have been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from God. So the gospel preached to you by the Holy Spirit sent from God, next phrase, things into which angels long to look. The angels are smart, but they're not omniscient and not omnipresent. Paul's disclosure here is incredible. 
He's saying that the church provides divine information to the angelic realm, demons, angels, and Satan himself by saving sinners and pulling them together in the church. The context, remember that, is the union of Jews and Gentiles as believers in the church. I think it's very likely then that the animosity that Jews and Gentiles had toward each other was fueled by satanic and demonic forces. And in God's manifold, multifaceted wisdom, the angelic realm understands something of God's nature through the gospel and unity of believers. Said conversely, when we are not good stewards of the gospel and when we, when we are in any way at odds with others in the church, we stop proclaiming truth to the angelic realm. Note this, though. This passage doesn't tell us that we are to preach to the angels or the demons. I don't want you to go home and call a meeting in your living room. Demons, angels, Satan yourself, come and sit down. I have a few things to tell you about. That's not what's going on here. He's saying that his demonstration of saving sinners, this is what Peter said. They, they look and are curious about this. His demonstration of saving sinners by grace his demonstration of unity with Jews and Gentiles in the church is unique to them. Why? Angels were never forgiven. When the demons fell, they had no chance. So they look at what God is doing to save sinners, and they, in worshipful reverence, scratch their heads. Conversely, the demonic realm, the rulers, the authorities that we'll look at in chapter 6, do everything that they can to keep us from valuing, understanding, receiving, and especially sharing that grace. Much more to say about demons and angels when we get to chapter 6. It's the precious unity of believers in the church that proclaim divine grace, divine wisdom to these angelic beings that they would have otherwise not known. It's incredible. Secondly, <laughs> our proclamation is disclosing access to God through faith in Christ. That's the purpose. We want to disclose access to God through faith in Christ. This is our message. This was in accordance, verse 11, with the eternal purpose. This has not, it was hidden from the Old Testament saints, but not from the Trinity. God's purpose was eternal to save sinners through his Son which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it was eternal, eternally his plan, but carried out in time and space. Remember that phrase we saw him tell Timothy? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul uses the same phrase as Timothy. He uses it to the Philippians as well. In whom we have boldness, confident access through faith in him. Now, very quickly, there's a parallel going on here between verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11. God's mystery, God's manifold wisdom, and God's eternal purpose. Those are all synonyms. They're working together. His mystery, what he's newly and freshly revealing. His manifold wisdom, that what he's doing is best and right, and his eternal purpose. This was something that was planned from all eternity past. And it all comes together. Look at the phrase, carried out. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Verse 12. Verse 12 is such amazing truth. 
Paul tells us that we have boldness and confident access. Now, that's interesting to say we have access. If I walked to you this afternoon and said, I'm so excited to give you this, what is it? It's a key. Your first question would be, to what? So he says, access. We have to say, to what? To God. To God. And we know that because it's through faith in him. Access to God. How can we get this key that unlocks access to God? How can we receive an invitation to heaven? It says so right there. Through faith in him. Who? Christ. Jesus. Our Lord. Every one of those is significant. Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the long-awaited one, Jesus, the man from Nazareth who was fully God and truly man. Our, this is possessive. This is relational. And Lord Kurios, the one to whom we owe all of our lives. Each of those carries a truckload of Christology. But what's central here is the doctrine of sola fide, faith through him. Remember Ephesians 2.8? We spent some time there. For by grace you have been saved through believing, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You see how he's consistent in his messaging? Boy, it's worth asking, do you, do you have this faith? Have you believed the gospel? Do you have faith? When we were studying Romans, I, I got a little redundant because I was so overwhelmed. I remember studying chapter 5 into chapter 6. I remember I was sitting at a coffee shop studying, headphones in, coffee cold, saying there's got to be more to it than this. You, to be saved, you only have to believe what he did to save you. And I just remember thinking, there's, there's, I, I feel like there's got to be more that I would do. There's nothing you can do. He's done it all, which is what makes grace, grace, and our salvation not by works. And the last feature, very simply, is the partnership of gospel stewardship. The partnership, therefore, I love the therefore, <laughs> you're preachers to the angels, you're demonstrating to all eternity, you're recipients of God's grace, you're a steward of the gospel. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart. The, the word literally means give up at my tribulations or sufferings on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul asked the Ephesians not to lose heart, not to give up because of his own personal trials and sufferings, but instead to see them as God's, with God's eyes as God's perfect provision for Paul. We began this chapter by looking at that. It drives us back to chapter 1 where Paul says, I'm a prisoner, not of Nero, not of Rome, not of a Roman soldier holding me at sword point. I I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus the Lord. 
His theology was rooted, listen, in seeing life from God's perspective, not his own warped, sinful perspective. Rooted here in his theology of glory. Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When I look at everything that's going wrong in my life, Paul said, that can be consuming unless unless I develop the perspective comparing it to the glory that's to follow, unless heaven is real to me, unless heaven is something I long for. Wow, it's hard to talk to people in Kansas City and in Johnson and Jackson County about how they need a Savior when they hardly need anything. They can buy their food. They have a place to sleep. They have multiple clothes. And you tell them you have a great need. That's tough. But let me take you to places I've been in Africa where they don't know if they're going to eat today or tomorrow. And they have one pair of clothes and the shoes that they have are worn out. And you talk to those folks about heaven, and you see a smile that's generated from their souls. Paul looked at glory, their glory, God's glory. Profound example to follow here in verse 13. His understanding of God, God's goodness, God's care, God's sovereignty, God's love gave him a divine theological interpretation of difficulties. Paul knew well, Psalm 119, verse 68. Psalmist says, you are good, Lord. You are good and you do good. And he believed that. We've said over and over, one of the main theological foundations for our life is this. What we interpret as bad or bad things is never outside of God being good and doing good. Never. It's never outside of His sovereignty never extends beyond his love. It seems that some of the readers were sad and upset over Paul's extended years of imprisonment, his never-ending trials because of his ministry. And Paul says, no, don't lose heart over that. This is for your glory. I'm here because I was preaching for you and to you. And that's okay because, oh, these words are so, so easy. Because I trust God. But the application can be so difficult. Who he is and what he's doing is an extension of his love and care for me. And Paul believed that. He brought what he knew to be true to bear on his suffering and on his difficulties. That's a key that will unlock peace, happiness, and contentment. To bring truth, biblical truth to bear on difficulties. We walk away from this passage. I just ask you, do you have boldness and confident access to God because you have faith in Christ? Hebrews chapter 10 says there was a barrier, a dividing curtain that was ripped down. We have bold and confident access into the Holy of Holies, into the very nature and heart of God because of Christ, because of having faith in Him. Do you have that? Are you a believer? We ask this sometimes, and you can kind of tune out and say, well, this is the end of the sermon, so he's finding the the runway, the lights are on, the landing gear is down. No, 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 stop. Do, do, 
Do you have faith in Christ? You can have confident, bold access to God Almighty through faith in His Son and the gospel. For those who know Christ, do you? Wow. These are features of gospel stewardship. Are you, uh, are you faithful to steward and caretake God's truth and God's grace that he's given you? The salvation that he's given you wasn't just to be taken into a room and enjoyed and not shared. <laughs> this is a stewardship Read Jesus' parables over and over and over. He is going to return expecting that the stewardships he has given us have been acted on. And he expects an accounting of what he's given us and what we do with such grace. You know why I think, at least I, you know why I think we struggle with being faithful stewards? It's connected to this passage as we forget what unworthy wretches we were that God was saved by his goodness and grace. And if we'll remind ourselves, like Paul, that we're the least of all the saints, with the equal and accompanying smile that God has given us his grace, that will change fundamentally how we caretake the gospel. Listen to the words of James Boyce. So God let history unfold like a great drama upon a cosmic stage. The angels are the audience. We are the actors. Satan is there to do everything he can to resist and thwart God's purposes. This drama unfolds across the centuries as Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and John the Baptist and Jesus and Peter and Paul and all the other dramatic personnel of Christian history both the great persons and the minor persons are brought on stage to play the part God has assigned them and speak the words that come from hearts that love him. He goes on. Now, you and I are the players in the drama. You and I are the players. Satan is attacking. The angels are straining forward to look on. Are they saying the manifold wisdom of God in you? Are they seeing the manifold wisdom of God in you as you go through your part and speak your lines? They must see it, for it can be seen in you alone. What an amazing and daunting assignment. The world is watching, the angels are watching, the demons are watching. Satan is watching and God is watching. That we in our unity and we in our love for grace would be living sermons that preach how amazing Jesus is in the gospel. Father, please direct our heart to these truths for life change. Glorify yourself through our church in our unity and our love for truth and our amazement that you're gracious and you gave grace, that you're merciful and you extended mercy, that you're forgiving and you gave us forgiveness. 
Oh, Father, please never let us forget our unworthiness and your kindness to meet us there in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.